0: Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 14th of June, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be um, joined. Joined. Thank you very much. I told you I was having a, a se- senior moment today. Apologies for that. To so be joined uh, by Debbie, our nursing correspondent. And we've also got two guests. So we've got quite a packed news for you today. Okay, well, we're going to get started on started with
1: the uh, COVID inquiry, which kicked off yesterday. Here's Baroness Hallett, the lovely Baroness Hallett, of course, is uh, chairing this. And the question is, is it fit for purpose? And in fact, actually the better question is, what is its purpose? I'm sure uh, Debbie's going to have a comment on this in a second, uh, but the inquiry began with, uh, well, what I can only describe as a piece of uh, applied psychology because Baroness Hallett made it clear uh, that uh, she was going to lead off with a piece of video uh, which many people would find extremely harrowing. But it's okay, she said, because they're going to show this warning that you can see on screen uh, on the live stream. So you could pause the live stream or you could leave the room uh, if you weren't uh, prepared to watch it. Um, so uh, the video had uh, was uh, some edits of various people um, talking about their experience of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And inevitably, they're talking about relatives and close loved ones who had uh, passed away. Um, So, the video undoubtedly was very harrowing and it was, uh, I believe, designed to have a psychological effect on people watching. Um, Now, I don't want to understate, of course, the personal tragedy for the people who believe that their loved ones died from a novel coronavirus, but I'm going to say that I certainly dispute that that's what they died of, uh, because for me, uh, for example, the ongoing excess mortality that we're seeing. Nobody seems to be concerned about that. It's been fairly steady levels for the last two years. Uh, and bearing in mind that this, that the five-year average that we're measuring this excess mortality against is higher now because uh, it's taking into account uh, 2022, it's taking into account, the, sorry, the COVID-19 wave in 2021. So uh, that even makes the situation worse. Uh, nobody seems to be too, too worried about that. Um, But of course, so we've got to ask, well, what was the reason for the mortality? Was it because of a novel coronavirus pandemic or was it for other reasons? Well, I want to highlight uh, this article from uh, the UK column. It's called uh, Exercise Cygnus, Uh, UK Government Exercise Justifies COVID-19 Lockdown. lockdown. It's by Robin Kaiser. And just take a couple of quotes from this because, of course, she was pointing out that in the years leading up to the uh, so-called pandemic already, Uh, intensive care beds were being shut down. So uh, she's saying here in 2016, the Royal College of Surgeons uh, had complained uh, of chronic bed shortages so much that the occupancy rates had gone beyond 89%. So that's general hospital beds. Uh, She goes on to say that in 2018, the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine, astonishingly reported that across the UK, 80% of intensive care units were sending patients to other hospitals either because of a lack of beds or a shortage of staff, particularly nurses. And to cap things off, she said that by 2019, it was being reported by the British Medical Association that ICU beds had begun to be used for patients recovering from routine operations, uh, and that when more emergency beds were needed, a policy of escalation beds came into force. Uh, The BMA dryly reported uh, that there was little sign of this practice ending. So uh, you know, what the point that's being made here is that the evidence is showing that the NHS was already under massive stress before the headlines about uh, an oncoming pandemic came along. And I'm going to suggest that, uh, you know with the best will in the world, uh, a certain proportion of the NH- NHS probably panicked at the time. But it, it didn't end there, of course, because once the pandemic hit uh, in anger, then what did they do? They started uh, reorganizing the hospitals pulling more beds out of the hospitals uh, during that time um, because they had to then impose a social distancing uh, policy. Um, So they uh, were attempting to make sure that there was two metres between each bed and so on, and they reduced the number of beds even further. Um, So coming back to the actual uh, inquiry itself, um, here is the uh, lead counsel to the inquiry, Hugo Keith KC. He said this, uh, you will hear evidence that for many years, an influenza pandemic was assessed as being one of the most likely risks to the United Kingdom. Uh, he went on to say, uh, sorry, uh, but what about other risks that whilst they might be less likely could just uh, as if not, sorry, could be just as if not, not more deadly. Uh, so he's suggesting that really, and this perhaps is the theme of the thing, the suggestion that really the UK government was only interested in, a, in a, an influenza pandemic. And that when something else came along, um, then they weren't prepared for it. They didn't know how to react to it, and so on. But actually, when we look at the preparations for this, and I mean, the the, the uh, statement about the infu- being prepared for influ- influenza pandemic is absolutely correct because that was the scenario that they had been using for testing uh, under exercise sickness and other uh, similar exercises. Um, the actual. Uh, Plans that they had in place were exactly what were eventually rolled out uh, during 2020 and 2021. So coming back to this article, again, I just wanted to highlight another quote from this. Uh, It said that following the publication of the 2011 preparedness paper, uh, the number of ICU beds continued to fall. Uh, Then five years later, the government held an unusual and secretive event called Exercise Cygnus involved all government departments, all local authorities, the NHS, right across the UK. Its report has not been published for national security reasons, and so as not to frighten the public, despite the fact they then subsequently did go on to frighten the public uh, through the SPY B proposals. Um, however, according to those with first hand knowledge of the operation, Cygnus script contained a scenario uh, of a patent lack of capacity in ICU beds uh, and personal protective equipment. So, the scenario that was practiced during Exercise Cygnus was exactly the scenario that was rolled out. Uh, during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, a shortage of ICU beds, a shortage of general beds, a shortage if you're a member of personal protective equipment. This was the narrative that was being presented in the press uh, at the time. Um, and so uh, that was prepared for. And if you think back to that article, it said all local authorities, all government departments, all NHS, so they knew what they knew what was uh, or how to deal or you would think they knew how to deal with that situation. Uh, And yet when the uh, narrative came out in the media in early 2020, that was exactly the scenario that was presented to the public. Is the inquiry going to have a look at that? I don't think they are. They're clearly going to attempt to suggest that uh, the government was only prepared for influenza and when something else came along, it wasn't really prepared for it. And so it was making it up as they went along. Nothing could be further than the truth. They had rehearsed this in exercise sickness and they had it all down. Now, what's interesting, if we just put that back on screen for a second, That first link there, uh, at the end of the sentence, it says government held an unusual and secretive event called Exercise Cygnus. That, when I clicked on it this morning when I was just uh, taking these screenshots to show you, uh, resulted in this. Uh, Because strangely enough, that particular document, which is the only official document that we know of that that mentions this exercise, uh, which was from uh, the Wales NHS, one of the Wales NHS trusts, is no longer available. Uh, That's very strange. Well, let's just put it on screen. Uh, If we could just put that back up. Uh, So here it is. Uh, That is the document. Uh, The link has now been fixed because luckily the Wayback Machine uh, still has a copy of it. So we have fixed that link if anybody wants to go and look
0: at this document itself. So lots of questions, Mike, over this whole thing. What was happening previously? Excuse me. What's what's actually happening in this so-called inquiry? A lot of work to be done. 100%. So Debbie, um, I don't know what your thoughts
1: are on this. I mean, obviously, it's only the first day of it. uh, And we've had all the furore over the last couple of weeks about uh, its access uh, to various uh, WhatsApp uh, communications and so on. But I mean, what what are your thoughts on, on where this is going?
2: well good afternoon um my personal thoughts are number one when it comes to exercise cygnus let's not forget that was under jeremy hunt's watch and there's also lots of other secret exercises that we haven't been told about that were were within cygnus like exercise alice Um, it appears to me as though the inquiry is actually just an exercise to gather data to prepare for the next pandemic but it's going to take so long you know we're looking at six modules already with more modules coming and sweden completed their inquiry in one year to me this is an exercise in itself like sparse pandemic 2025 to 2028 and it's purely to gather data Again, information data. And I worry that the inquiry is actually exploiting people's tragic stories and ignoring them. And that when the inquiry does eventually come out with information, we'll all be too old to remember what happened.
0: Okay, so we've got Professor Norman Fenton here.
2: Yes, um, thank you. Professor Norman Fenton, as you know, um, is an incredible chap. He's a uh, emeritus professor at Queen Mary's, a computer scientist and risk information. And we've spoken to him many times before. I shared my concerns on the Sky Skycovion, the new vaccine in inverted commas that's been approved by the MHRA. And I'm really grateful to Professor Fenton because he's got an amazing Twitter account. And on his Twitter account, he posted his latest substack On um, his thoughts about our concerns on Skycovion vaccine. Not only that, but if you go to his Substack article, he's also put in very important questions for all of us to write to the MHRA, and you can see them there on the right of your screen, especially number seven. Did the change of role of the MHRA from regulator to to enabler impact your decision to authorise this vaccine? All of those questions are absolutely key and if people would like to submit their freedom of informations with those questions super super grateful moving on and thanking april and her cat very much for this email that i received now april has been to her doctor and has done exactly what we asked her to do which is we've asked all of you ask your doctors where your information is going and i'll let you freeze the screen on that but In essence, what April says is that she's not quite sure if the GPs do do frailty scores. Apparently, they're done if you're about to become hospitalised. And I'm going to double check on that with a couple of GPs I know. Her surgery was signed up to CPRD, which is the MHRA database sharing facility. So she was horrified. She said even though she'd opted out one year ago of sharing data, since then, the government have put in the national data opt-out And you have to opt out online. So for people that are elderly or people that are blind, they haven't been able to opt out. So if you think you've opted out, you might not have opted out. When she asked them about the Skycovion, they had no clue about it because the GP surgeries aren't rolling it out. It's being rolled out by vaccine centers. So thank you very much indeed for that very, very informative email, April. And please, everyone else, do the same.
0: Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Well, let's move on to matters to do with the Cabinet Office and uh, found this uh, tweet. Um, It said this, the first of its kind campus for government staff in key policy roles has been launched in Sheffield. Minister Alex Burkhardt launched the new initiative which opened up opportunities for people in Yorkshire to build careers in decision-making teams. And I'll I just wanted to add this little bit to that slide, if we could put that back on screen. Key question, um, which people need to be asking, is where does the key government policy come from? And is it going to be that it's going to come out of um, arrangements like this, which is, uh, I, I think, extremely interesting. So let's have a look at the little promotional video. I'm Alex Burkhart. I'm the Parliamentary Secretary in the Cabinet Office. And I'm here in Sheffield today to launch our new... Policy Campus, which is going to have over a thousand civil servants working on the big decisions that affect the Department for Education, the Department for Work and Pensions uh, and the Home Office. And we wanted to do this in Yorkshire because we have a fantastic knowledge economy here in Sheffield. Huge numbers of students, uh, but also huge numbers of high-end manufacturing jobs. And we think that by creating this ecosystem, we're going to be able to take more advantage of the, uh, the great talent that is in this city it's been amazing
2: to have the opportunity to have more um, chances for career progression and growth within Sheffield, You know, it's a fantastic city, um, the outdoor city, loads of great um, opportunities here and to have the chance for more civil service roles here and also more connection between the department and the other partners in the city is great, so the universities, the colleges, um, the local schools um, and uh, the other government departments that are based here like Department of Work and Pensions, you know, so I think it's fantastic to have that. I think it's very exciting. Uh, I've been in Sheffield for
3: 31 years of my 35 year career um, and we have obviously had lots of um, good work in over those years, um, both in terms of developing policy, developing high quality analysis, focusing on delivery and also working with partners in other sectors. But I think the new strategy will really galvanise that and give it a lot of extra extra support um, and a lot of actual practical things as well that will make a difference.
0: So it looks good and it sounds good, or well, does it? Um, let's uh, just pop the big man back on screen and have a think about uh, what may be really going on here. So is this going to be where the perverse education policy for which sexualizes children, is that going to be developed here? Uh, let's ask another question. Is this where the civil service will develop policies to stop people praying? Uh, is this where the civil service will teach its members that there's no such thing as a woman? And uh, is this actually where the civil service is going to use political applied psychology to change the way its members think and behave without them aware that it's actually happening to them? Because, of course, the nudging is being used by the government across the board. It's being used on MPs. It's being used within the civil service. Now we're bringing um, a training program together at a university And these civil servants are going to be exposed to everything in the government's armory to make sure that they produce the right policies that meets the government's key agenda. So my take on this is it's going to be a grooming uh, uh, facility for the civil service. And we can be sure that uh, behavioural insights team are going to be pretty close to it. But uh, if we just uh, pop him back on screen here, um, if you look at the cabinet, Twitter account itself, the banner headline is Ukraine, we stand together. So I'm asking a question here. Is it reasonable to assume that the civil service will use political applied psychology to ensure that everyone adheres to the pro-Ukraine line? And I think there's only one answer to that question. It must be, yes, that's exactly what they're going to do. Because, of course, we see this right across government. There is only the government policy and agenda. And if you challenge it, you're going to be in deep trouble and or lose your job. And of course, we're, we're even seeing it extend outside the civil service to politicians. Andrew Bridgen comes to mind that if you dare challenge the agenda, the COVID agenda, as one example, then you are going to be vilified and ostracized. So do you get a warm feeling about that, Mike? Absolutely. Running down my leg, Brian.
1: (laughs) Anyway, okay. Uh, Look, let's change tack. Now, on Monday's program, Brian uh, mentioned uh, this organization, the International Centre for 9-11 Justice, is a new new initiative that's been set up. Uh, And I'm delighted to say we're joined today by uh, Dr. Piers Robinson uh, to have a quick uh, discussion about it. Uh, Piers, welcome to the program. Um, uh, I mean, what is the uh, purpose behind this uh, organization?
4: Hi, Mike. It's uh, good to be with you. Um, well this is uh, essentially a, a, a relaunching of an organization which was set up um, in 2007 2008 uh, but it's its primary purpose is to try to consolidate what is uh, an immense body of knowledge which has been collated over the years by people researching 911 and specifically work coming out of the consensus panel and the journal of 911 studies um, and in order to, really take that and then take that moving forward to develop more research and more work on 9-11 and really to help people sort of more widely understand how important that event has been for what we're living through today as well. So this is, is not simply an exercise in sort of Trying to get to the bottom of exactly what happened on 9/11, it's also about um, helping us to understand the relevance of those events. Because what we have today, we have you know, surveillance culture, we have very high levels of propaganda, we have continuing encroachments on civil liberties, and everything we've been living through for the last three years we have perpetual war, and all, all of this in a very significant way flows out of uh, what what happened on 9-11. So th- these are all of the kind of incentives or all, all of the imperatives which have come together to to relaunch the centre. And, and it is, of course, in, in the passing of Professor Graham McQueen recently, and also David Ray Griffin, who were key uh, researchers in looking into 9-11 and have made huge progress in terms of uh, aiding our understanding of what happened. Not an understanding which has managed to get into mainstream yet, but um, we'll, we'll get there eventually. Um, but they, they passed away in the last six months. And, you know, this is it, clearly a key time at which we, we need to sort of take um, stock of everything that we have and then work towards um, constructively and in a scholarly fashion and an academic fashion building uh, the, our knowledge on, on 9-11 and its relevance to today. So that, that's the broad thrust of the organization uh, in terms of what it's trying to do.
1: Yes. And, and I mean, uh, uh, it. One of the questions it's asking is why is 9-11 still important effectively? And you've, you've described that to, to a certain amount, but I guess part of the problem that uh, is faced here is that uh, a significant proportion of the population wasn't born when, when the event itself happened. So, so how, do, how do we engage with, with that group of people, that demographic and, and explain to them just how important or even what the event was about?
4: Well, I, I think for the, for the younger demographic, uh, you know, there are very high levels of awareness today after what we've been through over the last three years, very high levels of awareness about the extent to which our political systems, the extent to which our democracies have been become corrupted by political power, economic power, and so on. There are very high levels of propaganda. And there is an awareness that there has never been, certainly in my lifetime, of uh, the fact that governments can engage in nefarious actions which are not in the interests of the people, of publics. that governments do uh, harm not only other people in other countries when we go to war, but also our own populations. And so I, I think with that awareness, which I think you know, a significant part of the younger population has, it's, then, you know, it's not difficult for them to start to understand what happened on 9-11, which is not as the official narrative claims, um, but also, so, so they can understand the relevance of it through what they've been experiencing and, and the, the basic stock of knowledge they have. But, but, but critically, helping not just the younger generation, but everybody else understand that these processes, these events have critical commonality. There's uh, an important link between them. And if we are as people to properly understand what we're going through and actually resist and push back against it, we need that kind of historical understanding. As you know, propaganda often works by erasing public awareness of previous propaganda events or psychological operations. Um, and if we can counter that and if people, young people can realize how important it is for them to understand how we got to where we are today, um, I think you can have a powerful impact in terms of raising awareness uh, about the issue and about the issues that we're living through at the moment.
1: Yeah, brilliant. And just just to finish, Piers, uh, just very briefly, uh, one of the things that is mentioned on the front page of the website is, of course, the, the collapse of Building 7. And I just thought I'd mention that in the context of the uh, Mariana Spring attack on the light newspaper and Darren Nesbitt, because, of course, if you watch the full uh, the full interview that the light paper has published, he talks about that with her and she refuses pretty much to engage on that particular topic because the BBC still hasn't answered the questions about why they reported something which hadn't happened yet.
4: Yes, indeed. And on the building seven issue, with the volume of evidence that there is now in the public domain, and, and from researchers as well, from Hulsey, for example, uh, they're on a sticky wicket with that issue in a very big way because because the science is very very strong in terms of what actually happened to that building. Yes. Um, so no wonder they want to avoid the question at all costs.
1: Indeed. Brilliant. Piers, thank you very much for joining us today. I'd just like to remind everybody that uh, when was it? 2021, I think we, think we did this. Uh, the Propaganda 9-11 and the Global War and Terror Symposium is still on the UK Column website. Uh, so uh, if you want to have a look at that, uh, there's some fantastic uh, presentations from Piers Robinson and, and all the other people that you can see on screen at the minute. So Piers,
0: thank you very much for joining us. Right. Okay. Well, If you like what uh, UK Column does, please join us and uh, okay, particularly join the community. And I'm also going to give a reminder that extra time today is special because we're going to be talking about the future for UK Column. Also visit the shop. Many good things there. If you haven't made a purchase, that would be a good thing to do. And also share the material because it's important to get what we're talking about about, out, and about. And uh, we're going (coughs) to give people a reminder that Debbie's blog is uh, up. Debbie, I don't know whether you want to say a couple of seconds on that.
2: I do. I want to say teledermatology, a new jab for RSV, Wegovy weight loss. If you're thinking about it, or you know anybody is, read my blog. I think you might think again. NASA's mission to save us all from an internet apocalypse and shop and go with Aldi and a QR code. And okay.
0: more. <laughs> Thanks very much for that. And uh, just a quick advert for the interview going out tomorrow at one o'clock, which is The Financial and Intellectual Bankruptcy of the West. That's with David Scott and Bob Moriarty. This is extremely interesting, covers a lot of subjects. So have a look at that. And uh, we've got a further, oh, uh, sorry, we've got one here, which is uh, for you, Debbie, which is the introduction radar. Will spot pandemics. Where is this taking us?
2: Uh, to I think something that we all need to be aware of. Uh, in the Sunday Times this week, I noticed a tiny, tiny little story that said radar will spot span will spot pandemics. So I decided to do a bit more deep diving, and I found another story in another. Uh, there we go. In the mirror, biothreats radar set up to scan for new pandemic and bioterror alerts facing the UK. Well, what does this actually mean? It means £1.5 billion per year invested into a new UK biological security strategy. Who knew this existed? And this has only just been published in 2023, literally only just been published. So if you go to the forward, you can see that the gentleman in charge is our very own Deputy Prime Minister, um, Oliver Dowden. Now, this is to basically prepare us for biological threats. What do we do in case of biological threats? And just out of interest, yesterday there was a statement made in the House of Lords on the 12th of June by Baroness Neville Rolfe about the publication of the biological um, agenda going forward. But let's have a look at the governance of this. And you can see there on screen, it starts off with Parliament and then you've got the Prime Minister. The lead minister. So there's going to be a minister appointed specifically for bio threats and bio surveillance because that's what we're talking about. And you can see as the train goes, as the trail goes further down the page, um, this includes all four nations. And it also includes right at the bottom, very small, so you might have to just zoom in, the National Situation Centre, the National Protective Security Authority, the Defence and Security Agency, and the British Business Bank. Now, the British Business Bank is a government owned business development bank, which um, goes with the tagline, start up, scale up, stay ahead. So, clearly we're looking at biosurveillance on a big scale. When we start to look inside the document, it's a big document, we can see where in the UK life sciences is going to be targeted. So freeze the screen for that because you can see also where clinical research is going and where the phased different trials are going to be going. And on the right, you've got the history of the pandemics when you can see that the great plague Uh, was 3 million, that the uh, Black Plague or bubonic death was 200 million we lost, and right at the bottom, COVID-19, 6.8 million globally. So those are the history of pandemics, and I just note, again, the word epidemics is very important. So again, looking into the document, what's the Situation Centre? You know, who's heard of the National Situation
0: Centre? But
2: there it is. Sorry
0: can you hear me all right <laughs> yes i'm i'm sorry just to, just come in there i was just fascinated by the applied psychology in that graphic because you had the pyramid shape uh, including the um, outbreaks but of course the historic ones were at the top and that's where your eye naturally goes to. So you're looking at black death or, or whatever it was, I haven't got it on screen anymore, but essentially your eye is drawn to the worst case. So this is about a fear factor as well. Black death, yeah, there it is, bubonic plague, 200 million. So the first thing people are gonna pick up is what's at the top of the pyramid, not at what is at the bottom. And I think that's deliberate psych, psychology.
2: Yeah, completely, but I've I've gone into the documents and I just want to bring up, the document's huge and it's only just come out. Not a lot of people are talking about this, but this is, this is 1984, super accelerated. So just a couple of case studies to show you within the document, the National Situation Center, that'll tell you that it was established in 2021 and what it actually does. And then you can freeze the screen there for the biological security strategy, which will tell you that um, 61% of infectious diseases in humans originate from animals. There's a big clue. But this document is a big document. I'm only literally skimming the surface. Another couple of the, um, the I think, most concerning uh, case studies is the SIGMA collaboration. Now, clearly you can see in this document, it's, it's there for everyone to see, The U.K. government is working alongside the U.S. defense advanced research program agency DARPA to develop and investigate the potential for a network system of sensors to detect the production or release of chemical and biological threats in urban settings and transport hubs. Now, this is going on in London okay so that's part of of this strategy also you can see there the 100 day mission we all know about the 100 day mission right so we know that if they decide to call a pandemic or an epidemic they want to accelerate therapeutics vaccines and, and pretty much anything within 100 days and clearly that gives them the power to do that. But how are they going to do it? Well, we've talked many times on UK Column about wastewater monitoring, haven't we? And we've talked about polio. And that's exactly the way we're we're looking at this radar. We're all under the radar. We're all on the radar, even your poo. So of course, here we have a big strategy there for wastewater monitoring. And again, on the right of the screen, you'll see that we go back yet again to genomics surveillance the uk is uniquely placed to make a difference oh well aren't we just we have a unique population a global science superpower the development of new pathogen agnostic environmental detection and surveillance technologies will open up opportunities for the uk to showcase its scientific strengths and attract inward investment I rest my case, gentlemen. This is all about, in my opinion, surveillance in the UK starting now immediately. So something to keep our eyes literally on their radar.
0: Can we just add... And, and emphasise the fear factor because, of course, the thing is driven into the public mind with fear. We're all going to die of something horrible in the future. But yeah, quite quite incredible that we've got this immense um, surveillance network coming. On the other hand, we're told that if June Rain and the MHRA team um, do their best, we needn't worry about our health because they're going to have us vaccinated so we won't get any diseases. So this is... This is extraordinary, it, you know, one hand, the other hand, what's going on here? It's a, it's a big game, it seems to me.
2: Yeah, well, it's surveillance. I mean, you know, they're watching, um, I always say medical devices, for example, they're not medical devices, they're spy devices. These are all spies within you, with, with, you know, people that are wearing uh, smart devices, Uh, Medical devices for diabetes. These are spies. This is gathering data. This is surveillance. We have to remember the UK is the second most surveyed country in the world after China, I believe. So this is where we're going. We are a test bed for surveillance.
0: In, In order, I'm sorry, just to force the point, in order to attract inward investment. So whatever they say in these documents, ultimately, this is a money making scam
2: of course, (laughs) of course, 100%. And you can see it quite clearly at the bottom there. Who'd heard of the British Business Bank? You know, I'll, I'll come on to that on another news, but that's a whole new subject. You know, start up, scale up, stay ahead. We've got all of this money to throw into like ARIA, these weirdos and eccentrics at Dominic Cummings, throwing money at all of these crazy ideas. And all of it is just to track us and survey us and know what we're doing and invade our privacy.
1: Yeah. So on on Friday's uh, news program, uh, Debbie, I'm going to be talking about uh, the fact that the uh, US intelligence agencies are spending huge quantities of money buying up data from private companies, Uh, health companies, social media companies, a whole raft of different companies in the United States. Of course, the the UK already has the legislation to sort of permit that kind of thing over here as well. And I'll give examples of that. Uh, But the AI agenda, the reason that Britain is so pushing so hard on the AI agenda. If you remember, we reported a few days ago that, uh, or last week that, that uh, we are about to, to host a big conference on how to make AI safe because the, the, there's so much data being collected at the moment that, that there's no possibility of human beings actually processing it. So they need to develop the machine learning and, the, and what they're calling AI in order to process that this and, and get useful information out of it for them. Um, so uh, we'll be talking about a bit more about that
0: on Friday. And we can just see this slipping sideways into Sheffield University for the government's policy. So we've seen the plan on paper. Where is it going to be developed and enacted, put into practice? That'll drift in through through the team of leaders, the thought leaders at Sheffield University.
1: Okay, uh, Debbie, let's move on then. and uh, we've got another guest, Cheryl, just uh, just well, you go ahead.
2: Well, I'm delighted because Cheryl's been gathering data all of her very own. And you'll remember the wonderful, our wonderful friend, Cheryl Granger, who managed to ruffle the MHRA's feathers live during the board meeting. Uh, Well done, Cheryl. Well, she's been gathering information for us at the Better Way conference. So without further ado, welcome. Thank you, Cheryl, for all you're doing. And tell us, how was it at the Better Way conference?
3: uh Hi, everybody. It was very busy. It was very very um intense uh it was two and a half days finishing at nine o'clock at night of having eight um conversations eight um Uh, sections with eight people doing ten minute um, uh, reports and then they had a a panel discussion Um, so it was very intense, lots of information, lots of people um, meandering around during the breaks and talking to each other which is a good thing because that means everybody's mixing and everybody's absorbing all this information so I'll just go through the problems that they talked about and um, the way that they're trying to move everybody away from the problems that we've got Um, so come Conversation one was big pharma to real health. So that was actually um, trying to get us to uh, move away from captured institutions and put health first uh, and to particularly move us towards safe, repurposed, cheap, well-established alternatives. Conversation two was moving us from fake foods to foods as medicine. Um, so that's trying to move us away from any of these synthetic foods to naturally grown local organic food uh, to helpfully, hopefully uh, transform our health, um, both of individuals but of land and communities. Uh, the third conversation was about um, AI and transhumanism and moving us back to being human again um, so it asked the question is there an inevitability at this point of moving towards transhumanism um, and what are the implications and therefore starting to discuss about what it means to be human and looking at the sanctity of life um, the fourth conversation was looking at electro smog as they called it um, to nature's frequencies um, and that was basically uh, trying to get us to take necessary steps now. Regulation would be a good thing, but to get necessary steps to reduce the impact of man-made electromagnetic frequencies. Um, The fifth conversation was about climate change uh, to nature nurture, and that was, uh, again, moving us to exploring solutions so we have a net positive future. Sixth conversation was looking at thought control to free thought, um, and that was talking about all the manipulation by the media and living in a technocracy um, and how do we reclaim and protect our minds, our privacy, our money. Um, The seventh one was moving from One Health, which is the WHO, pushing um, to optimise people, animals and ecosystems um, to taking back our power. And then finally they were looking at scarcity um, to abundance and that was looking at finding the better way um, away from where we're being pushed. Um, So they're actually saying uh, we need to set a path away from fear towards love and trust, remembering who we are, embracing the infinite positive possibilities available to us, exploring everything that's available to us and getting getting groups to start working together and I'd just like to mention I made contact with uh, the COVID control group so that was um, a Group that was started by two wonderful ladies who realized that once the um, studies on the vaccines had got rid of the control group because they 'd injected them all um, that we didn 't have anything that would give us long term safety data, so they started um, putting together um, a group, the control group of the unvaccinated they 've now got three hundred and forty thousand uh, controls unvaccinated people registered with them in one hundred and seventy seven countries, um, which means that um, they um, can help a lot of people in certain situations. So um, this um, card um, is what you would get if you went on to vaxcontrolgroup.com, V-A-X controlgroup.com, and you can register yourself and you can make um, decisions about how you want to be treated if you, for example, went into hospital as an emergency.
2: Cheryl, thank you very much. And I know that you'll be hopefully joining us for extra and we'll talk about it some more then. Thank you.
0: Uh, yeah, I was stuttering a bit there because I thought, my goodness, with that description of what all those people were doing, and I know it was an exceptionally friendly event and a lot of good information. If Mariana Spring had been there, that would have been a hate conference, I think. She would have yes. said these disgraceful people talking about love and trying to make the planet a better place. But maybe I'm just being a bit cynical on that. Well, the BBC is... Um, is worried because uh, there's a decline in appetite for the news apparently. What better person to put on the uh, image than Zelensky, I thought, but maybe that's a little bit of applied psychology from the BBC. The report, (coughs) excuse me, for the basis of this comes from Reuters, um, but they, (coughs) excuse me, they say there's a sharp decline in the numbers taking a strong interest in the news in recent years. Um, I think the reality is that there's been a decline in people looking at the legacy news, such as the BBC, because, of course, for UK Column and other um, new news organisations, we've seen a dramatic rise in the number of viewers. But BBC obviously sees a different picture. But if we have a look at their report, I've just taken a little bit out of it. There was two journalists. This is the first man, Daniel Rosny. Um, he's saying here only around 10% of people in the UK are classed as active participants. Now, this is a pretty poorly written article, but I believe what he's talking about is active participants in the news. They are largely male, old, and have strong political views. Is this aimed directly at us, Mike? I don't know. And and are more highly educated than the rest of the population. Well, this just gives us a little insight into the BBC's mind. And clearly, they're very worried at what's happening with news viewership in you. UK, but also worldwide. If we want to get a little measure of the journalist himself, I went to his uh, Twitter page. Uh, It's always good to do that because you see amazing things. But here was the pinned tweet, which is all about the Eurovision podcast. And he also puts uh, at the top some professional news with professional, uh, more or less in in, the... Inverted commas. So he understands what he's doing. He's putting dross out there. People are responding and turning off. He knows it's dross because he can't call it professional. And um, it's it's just incredible what's starting to happen. So here's the, only, the other journalist, David uh, Salito. He says the authors, well, it's in a joint statement, to be fair, so but between these two authors, they're saying this. The authors of the Institute's report say there was evidence that audiences continue to selectively avoid important stories such as the war in Ukraine and the cost of living crisis as they cut back on depressing news and look to protect their mental health. So is this an acknowledgement that the BBC realises that it's damaging people's mental health by the dross they put out? And they're also acknowledging that people are pulling back and refusing to watch it. Well, there were some uh, statistics in the report, and I think we should bring those up on the screen. Um, more people want to limit news consumption. Um, There's a survey taking place over 2017, 19 and 22. Brazil is top of the list with uh, over 50% of people actively trying to avoid the news. But UK significantly is next. And uh, the figure there is about 46%, I think. So people are turning off uh, from the mainstream. Let's see if I can bring a bit more on screen. But the comment in the article also says trust was a factor too 29% 29% of those surveyed said the news was untrustworthy or biased, while trust fell in half the countries surveyed and rose in just seven compared with last year. Not sure what your take is on that, Mike, but I think this is clear sign that the BBC in particular desperately worried that people are turning away from the BBC.
1: Well, look, I think maybe because Piers are still with us, so I think we should just ask Piers for, for a bit of comment here because, because this issue of trust, Piers, I think is really important. If we look at the BBC, they're into the trust initiative. There's other trust-type organisations out there with other mainstream uh, 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 organisations. And it seems to me that the more they shout about trust, Demonstrates they're more they're worried that they are untrusted and they're untrustworthy. In fact,
0: you... I think we may have lost him.
1: Yeah, I think. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Uh. Sorry.
4: Right. Sorry. Did yes. You... I'm still here.
1: Yeah, you didn't hear that.
4: No, I didn't. You just broke there. But we're talking about trust and trust levels. And yeah. So got, so um, so basically, what I was saying was
1: yes, the BBC and so on are are busy setting up trust initiatives and there are other organizations with similarly named uh, sort of umbrella bodies to try to demonstrate how trustworthy they are. But it seems that the more that they shout about trust themselves, uh, and this this article that Brian's talking about is really implying that they recognize that they've lost that trust and really they're shouting a lot about it in an effort to, to persuade themselves almost that that they are still trusted. There's a, a deeper recognition that they're not.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is correct. I mean, from all the figures I've looked at, trust levels you know, in the UK and in the US, and I would assume across many other democracies, trust levels in the media is, are extremely low. And if you trace things back to sort of the high point in the US of trust in in, um, in corporate media is running, I think, about 70 percent, it's sort of down below 20 percent, if I'm correct. Um and so on. And so we have got, um, it's, it's tempting to even call it a catastrophic collapse in trust levels in corporate legacy media. And yes, you're right. They, one tactic is to sort of say, well, we need to try and um, sort of work out why people don't trust us anymore. But the other tactic, of course, is what we see with Mariana Spring and the attempting to define anything outside of the mainstream as disinformation or malinformation and so on. Um, So it seems to be a combined tactic being employed by them. But for sure, um, we've been through so many events now where, in a sense, the wheels have come off and COVID is one of them, um, clearly, uh, that the public is aware at levels we've never seen before, I think, in Western democracies, that corporate media are deeply untrustworthy, closely connected to political and economic power. And, uh, you know, the only sort of path to take now really is to go and start looking at independent media, people who are sort of detached from that, such as UK Column and so on. But, you know, I, 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 sh- I, I bet there's a level of self-deception going on within the BBC <laughs> and some of these people that um, people are just untrustworthy because they've gone sort of extremist, etc. Um, But I suspect quite a few of people and people higher up in in the BBC are fully aware that um, people are waking up to really how I describe it as a level of corruption areas in legacy media. You know, they are supposed to be independent and act as a challenge to power, but they don't. And they haven't done that for years. We've known that in sort of people people who study communications and media. And and I think there's just an awareness, yeah, from some of them that this is... The, the game's up on that front, and they're losing audiences fast.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. OK, well, let's just end the segment by bringing the BBC's bunny girl up on the screen. Actually, I've called her the bunny girl. I don't know whether to call her the bunny girl or BBC's free speech Witchfinder finder general. Um, but could it be that as the BBC realised that its biased brand is being unmasked, And viewers are turning away. Mariana is unleashed to try and kill off the competition. Has it got to this stage where the BBC is using its power, its billions of pounds to actually go out and attack people? who are providing a better product, which is undermining the BBC's own power base. I think there's some really big questions to be asked, especially about the bunny girl herself. Um, Debbie, let's bring you in because you've got some very interesting analysis here on GB News, which of course has become very big in the minds of a lot of people.
2: Yeah, well, what's the definition of a polebrity? That's my new word. That's my new buzzword. So I just wanted to, th- these are going to be fairly quick slides because it's going to be a reminder for many people already. But looking at the funding of GB News, so already somebody's put in an information, a freedom of information to Ofcom asking about their funding. And basically Ofcom said, yes, they do hold the information, but they're not actually obliged to disclose it. So to check their investors page, which of course we've done before. and um, But before we look at their investors page, I need to look at um, an article that was printed in the Press Gazette Future of Media just prior to the deal being struck. But here you can see a Dubai-based investment group and pro-Brexit investor amongst £60 million funders to back GB News. So let's see if that actually came true because the Dubai-based investment group was Legatum and the pro-Brexiteer hedge fund billionaire was Sir Paul Marshall. And sure, if you go to the GB News investors page, you can see there that we've got Legatum and Sir Paul Marshall. Sir Paul Marshall, who's a businessman, a philanthropist. Uh, he's also the co-founder and chair of ARC Schools. Um, and he, uh, he started the Marshall Institute, but we'll come on to that maybe in extra. It, it gets even more interesting in extra. So please hold with us for extra. So go to the government page and look at Sir Paul Marshall. And yes, we've got one. And it clearly says that um, he's chairman and chief investment officer of Marshall Waste LLP, one of Europe's leading hedge fund groups. He's also founding trustee of ARC, the children's charity, and chairman of ARC schools. So let's go to Legatum very quickly. And we'll see Legatum's uh, website because they are one of the primary investors. They're a global firm firm with a portfolio of investments. And then when we go further into Legatum, we can see that uh, they are tied up to the Luminos Fund. The Luminos Fund gives children excluded from school due to poverty, discrimination or conflict, a second chance for mainstream education. So let's look at the Luminos Fund. And there we can see... You've got Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You've got the Lego Foundation and plenty of other organisations. Now, if we just go back to GB News and look at their presenters, we can see already that a couple this is a husband and wife team, Esther McVeigh, a politician and Philip Davis. They were investigated by Ofcom for a, a possible breach of impartiality when they interviewed Jeremy Hunt. Um, And then I went to look at the presenters on GB News. And I've done a little screenshot for you just to see a few of the political. This is why I call them polebrities, because they seem to have become celebrities. The ones that I've highlighted in blue are not um, actually sitting members of parliament, obviously, like Nigel Farage and Gloria De Piero and Arlene Foster, who was the leader of the DUP. But clearly you can see there that Esther McVeigh and Jacob Rees Mogg are both sitting parliamentarians with their both with, with their own shows. And we've also got another politician in the mix quite heavily with GB News, which is Lee Anderson. And um, he's scheduled to become the latest Tory MP to host a show of his very own on GB News. So let's just go and look at the figures here because these are politicians who earn, what is it, 80,000 pounds for an MP, and they're meant to be serving their constituents and public service. So when I went to look at the register of members' financial interests, and these are the latest ones, this is Lee um, Anderson. And you can see there, I mean, I'll let you freeze the screen, but you can see from the 1st of March, 2023, until further notice, he will receive £100,000 per annum paid monthly for eight hours a week work. And he is a sitting politician. So let's fast forward on to Esther McVeigh and look at the same. And there's quite a big chunk there to digest. But the one highlighted in um, yellow at the bottom says that she received £3,166.66 I'll uh, leave you to comment perhaps on the amount for four episodes. And then if you look back, you can see she was actually, she received 14,000 for 17 episodes, which were equated to 42 hours work. So let's look at uh, Sir, now Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's got his own programme pretty much every night. And you can see this is a very generous salary for a sitting politician. And he seems to be receiving around £30,000 every month for 40 hours work. That's a lot of money. That's just under £400,000 a year. That is in far in excess of what he would earn as a politician. And of course, he's a journalist for other publications as well. So the um, GB News are also, they seem to be splashing the cash a bit, because they've now got eyes on the Spectator, so uh, a fifty million pound deal. Uh, support uh, Paul Marshall, who we've just spoken about. Um, he seems to be circling like some kind of vulture for the Spectator, and also City AM are carrying that story too uh, about how that the Spectator is probably going to be swallowed up because the Barclay family. Um, have been in trouble, but that's that's a bigger story altogether. And just to finish this segment, I just want to take people back to the Spectator because James Forsyth, who is now no longer political editor uh, editor of the Spectator, James Forsyth has moved to Downing Street and now has become Rishi Sunak's personal advisor. Now, James Forsyth is not just Rishi Sunak's personal advisor; he's his best friend. He's godparents to his children. Uh, I mean, that the relationship is very close. And James Forsyth is married to Allegra Stratton, who first broke the whole party gate thing. So this thing with GB News and The Spectator, there's more on The Spectator to come, but you can see how, how intricate it is. And why are politicians earning so much money to present on television? That's my big question, celebrity.
0: That's because Parliament is redundant. There's nothing happening in in the House of Parliament. Everything else is being done through the think tank, Sheffield University, and direct from the media outside it.
1: Indeed, you know, uh, being an MP was a full-time job, but Jacob Rees-Mogg still has time to to work 40 hours on uh, But anyway, uh, let's just look at the Ofcom statement that they made a couple of days ago on this issue of uh, uh, celebrities. Uh, Viewers and listeners are at the centre of what we do, says Ofcom. To ensure our broadcasting rules remain relevant and effective, it's important for us to understand firsthand what people think and feel about the TV and radio content they consume and how perspectives might change over time. The rules around around politicians presenting programmes were first introduced in 2005. Given the rise in the number of current affairs programmes presented by sitting politicians and recent public interest in this issue, We're conducting research to gauge current audience attitudes towards these programs. So for the sake of clarity here, they're not going to change anything immediately. They're just asking people what people think about this. Um, and uh, so the, the rules currently state that an MP cannot serve as a newsreader, interviewer, or reporter on a news program, but they are allowed to host current affairs programs. Um, and so a news program, as far as Ofcom is concerned, is a program which features a presenter speaking directly to the audience, uh, a r- running a list of stories, mm-hmm. and the use of reporters and correspondence, and a mix of video items. So apparently uh, Jacob Rees-Snog's uh, uh, program on, on uh, GB News is not actually a news program. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I just want to end with Dan Wooten here because he's saying, uh, why have you never had this to Ofcom? Why have you never, or to Nick Robinson rather, talking about the Ofcom uh, report. Why have you never had a problem when for years LBC allowed the likes of David Lamy and Angela Rinner to regu- uh, host regular shows? I guess it doesn't matter when they're Labour frontbenchers. Uh, yet another example of bias from... GB News hitting British bashing corporation. Well, uh, yeah, okay, But, uh, you know, my personal view is that that no MP should be uh, involved in pushing out uh, their propaganda on any news
0: channel. Absolutely not. Well, let's end on the subject of Ukraine. Many people not aware that there's supposedly a Ukrainian counteroffensive that's been going on for several days now. Uh, But we thought it was uh, time to give an update. Uh, My goodness. Everything's in turmoil because it's not going to plan. Particularly horrible, horrible image and article from the Wall Street Journal here. Ukraine's offensive begins with ground gained. Tanks lost. Well, no ground has been gained because that's been lost as well. But the picture of here is of Ukrainian wounded. And I find there's something about this picture. For me, it's deeply offensive. Um, But basically, we've got Ukrainian wounded um, used to emotionally spin the disastrous progress of the Ukrainian offensive. The truth is the Ukrainian offensive has achieved nothing to date with huge casualties. But now we're focusing in on the wounded to hide the fact that the Ukrainians are already begging for tanks. There's something obscene about this. And uh, I'm just going to put this in. So ram it home, negligible ground gained by the Ukrainians ground that they've gained, they've lost. It's been retaken and lost in some places several times, but they haven't moved off the start lines effectively, but they've lost a lot of armoured vehicles. I'm going to bring in this clip, which wouldn't play for me on uh, Monday. Let's see if we're lucky. Uh, Now, obviously, this is drone footage, but what it's showing you is uh, Ukrainian armoured vehicles that have broken cover uh, in the offensive. (coughs) They're having now to try and shelter themselves because they're being shelled and attacked with anti-tank weapons by the uh, Russians. But here you see the the vehicles clumping together to make an even bigger target. And the result is that even more of them are hit. This is truly incredible excuse me, you've got armoured vehicles um, milling around in the open in a field. And of course, this makes them highly vulnerable to all of the weapons that the Russians could throw at them. And uh, many people, many military people saying to themselves what exactly was happening here, which allowed the Ukrainians to, Uh, undertake these pitiful tactics. Now it's spun by by the Western media, CNN politics here. Ukrainian forces suffer stiff resistance and losses in assault on Russian lines. But the reality as we'll see is they haven't even got to the Russian lines. And the carnage is so phenomenal that even um, Forbes has to carry a a front page picture. Um, We've started to get Leopard tanks and Bradley's Uh, shown in that damage. Uh, If we come in a different angle, this is military.com, one of Ukraine's new US-equipped storm brigades spotted in the east. And in this very interesting article, a gentleman called Adrian Bonenberger uh, says this. Now, I've paraphrased it. Go and read the article for yourself. The Russian video shows Ukrainian armour driving in single file across a field, hitting mines and getting stuck by artillery. I helped train Ukraine's 31st Separate Mechanized Brigade. Many of the men were in their 40s or older. A dozen were in their late 50s. This is truly pitiful that the West is doing this, forcing the Ukrainians to undertake this so-called offensive and they're paying dearly for it and then of course we've got the kiev post here reporting uh, but i'm i'm giving uh, a thanks to history legends for flagging this up and it caught my attention uh, but what it's saying is that the ukraine ukraine's high command picked the 47th to be the second army brigade to be filled out primarily with green soldiers trained first in britain primarily by commonwealth nation instructors. And what is so pitiful about that is, of course, that the British army does not have the experience to fight against the type of war which is being conducted in Ukraine at the moment. And I think we're seeing that from the training, the Ukrainian soldiers are being utterly betrayed with the casualties on the battlefield. Now, of course, the BBC not reporting, but we've got other international um uh, sources are reporting on the reality. So this is the Hindustan Times. Kiev has lost the West's mighty leopards to these Russian drones. Well, most of the damage has been done by air attacks and shelling, but fair enough. And you have another one here, Mike.
1: Yeah, so the Bradley. So this is is just a a sarcastic comment put out by somebody on Twitter. And I just thought it was really uh, uh, relevant because it said, sir, we have a problem with the Bradley uh, whose aluminium hulls are shredded like discarded beer cans, even though even their crews call them the death traps. The solution is to send the stockpile of Bradleys to Ukraine and soak ta- taxpayers for the full cost of replacements, uh, then buy something else. So the Bradleys have been complained about for quite some time. Uh, so this is just, uh, just wanted to highlight this because it, it, it makes the point, quite rightly, that we are just sending all our rubbish uh, over to Ukraine f- for it to be blown up across the Ukraine countryside. Uh, by the Russians. Uh, And then of course, our military industrial complex moves in behind and sells uh, more modern material back into the US and the UK.
0: Right. Well, just to give people a picture of what's happening and a big thanks to History Legends, I try and use different sources when I give these reports. But there are many very, very good uh, commentators and analysts out there. This was a particularly good graphic, so I'm going to give credit to History Legends. Um, But this is showing in red. Uh, the main Russian defense lines, and you can see that it's defense in depth. And the blue arrows are indicative of intended lines of attack by the Ukrainians. This certainly doesn't uh, show that the Ukrainians have penetrated right through to the third layer layer of Russian defense. In fact, the Ukrainians have been held right on the front line where, yes, they have captured some villages, but then they invariably lost them a few days later. And the thing to remember is that the Russians have established pickets on the front line. Uh, They alert forces to attacks. They will uh, conduct their own attacks, but then they vacate the area. The main Russian defense is some 17 kilometers behind the front line, and that forms a killing zone. That's how the tanks and other equipment were destroyed. Uh, But behind that, we've got the second defence line and the third defence line. And if we choose uh, a different provider, this is military summary, Uh, here we can see the Russian defences as the black dots. Uh, But we can see from the blue arrows that it's actually only right on the front line that this conflict is taking place. And in most of the settlements, they've been cleared of civilians by the Russians some time ago. The BBC, of course, attempted to turn this into propaganda by saying that the Russian clearance of civilians from the villages was mad panic. Um, And they added in this particular article, um, trying to say that with the civilians, Russian troops were running away as well, which was complete nonsense. So the truth of the matter is that uh, many, many Uh, casualties on the Ukrainian side, casualties on the Russian side as well, but no penetration into those Russian defences by the Ukrainians. BBC is silent, of course, but we'll just end with this, which is uh, how do we know things have gone badly? Uh, Well, this is European Pravda. Ukraine asked Germany for more Leopard 2 tanks. And why are they asking? Well, because uh, the tanks are being destroyed at an extremely high rate, particularly the the Bradley Infantry fighting vehicles. Um, But here we go round the boy again, asking the West for more weapons to keep this obscene war going. So we'll end on a note that UK column is here for peace. We want to see peace in Ukraine. But until the West stops providing arms, we're not going to see an end to that uh, piece anytime soon. So pretty appalling stuff. We better end there. I'll say to everybody, thank you very much for joining us wherever you are in the world. Please, if you're a UK Column subscriber, stay with us for extra time because we promised today to give you our update on good news for the UK Column. And uh, we will be back in a few moments. So thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye.